first of all, we are a government that has always exercised fiscal restraint. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau trying to pull a fast one on us, you might say. He's trying to claim that his government, which has been in power for a full eight years now, is fiscally responsible. Are you buying it? I'm not. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. Welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. This week on the podcast, we're going to take a look at the fall economic statement, the fiscal state of Canada's finances. Are they in good shape or are they in bad? This is a government that was elected in 2015 at a time when Canada had a a surplus, at a time when the Trudeau Liberals said it was a good time to spend. Justin Trudeau in that 2015 campaign said that Stephen Harper was pushing austerity, even though spending back in those days was still growing higher than it should have. But he got elected promising just four small deficits of $10 billion a year each, and then he would balance the budget. He never balanced the budget. It still hasn't happened. And if you look at the forecast that were released in the fall economic statement, it is a long way off before we will ever come close to balancing the budget. In fact, in the latest statement, the government has decided that between the budget that came out in the spring and the fall economic statement, that in the coming fiscal year, we will spend $10 billion more, $519 billion in total. Here's the shocking part. About $6 billion of that extra $10 billion in spending is just going to service the interest payments on the debt. That's not paying down the debt. That's like the interest payment on your monthly credit card. The credit card bill stays the same. You're just paying the interest. Is that fiscal responsibility? Is that what Justin Trudeau is talking about? I want to bring in our guest. He is a man who knows how to look at all of these numbers. Bill Robson is an economist. He's also the president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, a think tank based in Toronto that looks at fiscal matters. It's also named after a a well-known, well-renowned liberal finance minister who might have looked askance at the current state of Canada's finances. Bill Robson, thanks for the time. My pleasure to be here. I wish we were discussing something more cheerful than federal government <laughs> finances, but uh, so well, let, let me ask you about that. It's um, you know, uh, I I do this as a layperson. I do this as someone that's covered politics for a quarter century. But you're the economist. You're with the the CD Howe Institute, named for a renowned and esteemed liberal finance minister from many decades ago. Um, when you look at what the prime minister said about we're a government that's always believed in fiscal responsibility, and then you look at what they brought out with the fiscal update this week, do those two things mesh? Um, I don't think this government takes uh, public finances all that seriously. And it sounds uh, like a very sort of casual and maybe even a kind of unprofessional thing uh, to say, but we have to uh, look at, the projections we get uh, nowadays, including in the fall economic statement, with some wisdom of what we've learned from the last few years. And what we've learned from the last few years is that the projections that we see in each individual federal budget or fall statement are uh, almost immediately overtaken by events. And I am confident that between now and the spring budget, there will be new spending announcements made. Um, I think that after the spring budget, we'll see some new projections then, and then there will be more spending announcements made. 
Um, and so in between the various fiscal updates we've had, uh, you know, since before COVID, but now that all the COVID measures are, are kind of behind us, uh, we've just seen federal spending projections growing by massive amounts um, since the end of 2019. Uh, more than $100 billion has come into the projections for the upcoming fiscal year. And and so when I see these projections, I just say, well, you know, I, we have to talk about them. We have to kind of take them on their own merits. But when it comes to things like, uh, you know, what's going to happen to the budget balance is the ratio of debt to GDP, which the government has said is a really key indicator for them. Is it actually going to go down? Um, I, I have to reserve judgment on that and say, you know, we just haven't been able to rely on these projections in the past. And so it's it's hard to say we should take these ones any more seriously. Well, you, you get the, the budget in the spring, you get the fall economic statement. And I think it was in the last budget, which was supposed to be, by this government's measures, an austerity budget. They were going to cut back. They didn't do that. They added $20 billion in new spending. The fall economic statement that just came out compared to the budget from, I believe it was April, uh, you know, each year of projections, it adds billions more in new spending. We're about to hit that, that, that level of spending on debt that I didn't think we would ever do again. And that is that we're going to be spending more on servicing the debt than what the federal government spends to pay for healthcare in the provinces. Did that shock you? I mean, I've been watching that for a while, and I thought in a couple years we'll hit that level. I didn't think that would be this coming fiscal year. Uh, no, it's it's a problem for sure. They ran up a lot of debt. They borrowed. They said they couldn't afford not to borrow. Uh, now interest rates are back to levels that are much more consistent with with the longer term. Uh, and we've got this added problem that all that's bad, that spending added to inflationary pressure. And now central banks, uh, it's not just here. It's true in the United States and uh, uh, elsewhere as well. A lot of governments kind of overdid it the same, at the same time. Uh, but now central banks have put the brakes on. And so the cost of servicing the debt is up. Um, since you mentioned the cost of debt service, I want to point out that uh, there's a lot happening in federal finances now that is different from what happened when the federal government got into big debt and deficit troubles back in the uh, 80s and 90s. And one of the things that really concerns me when I look at these numbers is not just what they're showing on those debt servicing costs, which, as you point out, are now much higher than we thought they would be, certainly much higher than the government projected they would be. But there's a whole other side to the federal government's balance sheet. The federal government has a lot of financial assets as well. They have all these crown corporations and investment income from those crown corporations is historically a very important source of revenue for them. So the total cost of servicing, you know, it's it's there's two sides to the balance sheet. There's two sides when it comes to the interest you pay and the interest that you receive. And that whole uh uh, interest receiving side is in trouble now in a way that we never we never looked at this before. It was never an issue. Uh, so this is new. The bank account. Of- okay, but can, can you unpack that for me? What what are you meaning by that? Well, we'll start with the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada bought a whole truckload of federal debt uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and the bonds that it bought, that was when interest rates were very low. Now interest rates have gone up a lot. And so the bonds that they bought have lost a lot of value. Historically, the Bank of Canada paid a dividend to the federal government. 
But the Bank of Canada is now in this situation where they've lost so much money that they're not going to be paying a dividend. So that's one example where you had this investment income coming in on the revenue side of the balance or the revenue side of the federal government's uh, statement of operations, to use the formal term, what, what you see when you look at the budget, what you see when at the end of the year when you look at the public accounts. Now there's a whole lot more money going out to these various crown corporations. Uh, and the, uh, the federal government is projecting that they're going to be seeing a healthy flow of investment income. So in ordinary times and, and, and back in the day when the federal government was in trouble before, that was an important offset to the uh, interest payments that they were making. Uh, but I'm worried that in addition to the higher interest payments that you just mentioned, we're also going to be seeing that there's a hole on the investment income side. And so what that means is effectively that the cost of servicing the debt has gone up by more than what you see when you look at the interest payments alone. So I'm taking nothing away from your observation that the interest payments are higher. That is true. Uh, they're going to be more than 10% of revenue. That's in many people's eyes kind of a a, a bad indicator when you're spending more than 10% of your uh, tax revenue on uh, interest payments. But we also now have to pay attention to the other side uh, of, of the balance sheet, all their financial assets and the revenue that may or may not be coming in. So I just wanted to put that flag up for the numbers uh, people uh, in the audience that it has gotten more complicated. And I think that we're going to be needing to pay more attention uh, to some of those numbers than we needed to in the past. When governments get into fiscal trouble, uh, things, uh, you know, sometimes the numbers that you're used to watching uh, stop telling you the whole story. That's not something that I was expecting. And then, you know, th this growth in debt, you know, you look, we can cut the government some slack uh, and say, look, they had to take on some debt during COVID, but they took on an extraordinary amount of debt. And we and we've have known for some time that much of the spending that they undertook during COVID was not even related to the pandemic. It was not related to supports for individuals, supports for businesses. It was not related to buying, distributing the vaccines or other measures. They just went on a spending spree. They decided that this was what needed to be done. And, and now we're paying for it with higher interest payments. We're, uh, but as far as the bonds go, here's what I don't get. When I looked at the Ontario fall economic statement, yes, their interest payments are going up as well, but they're going up to about from six to 7% of, of revenue. The federal government used to be down around 6% of revenue going to interest payments on the debt. Now it's going over 10% next year. And, and when I asked the folks at Ontario, I said, why the difference? And they said, all during COVID, they just kept refinancing their debt. When interest rates were at historic lows, they would refinance with 30-year bonds at one, one and a half percent. It appears that the federal government didn't do that. And now the interest, uh, increase interest rate increases are going to be hitting the federal government's bottom line which eventually does hit services you know we, we can sound like two pointy heads uh talking about this but this has a real world impact when you're no longer able to afford the services that people expect well it's uh, th there's another very straightforward reason why the federal government's interest payments have gone up so much more than ontario's or other provinces and that is just the scale of the borrowing they undertook uh, was so huge. And it was huge relative to the federal budget. Uh, during the pandemic year, they came close. They didn't quite get there, but they came close to financing half their spending with debt. 
So if you're running up debt at a rate like that, yeah, your interest payments are are going to go up. Um, you you uh, didn't intend to lead me back to what I was saying earlier about the investment income side of uh, the the federal government's budget, but I I will go back there because uh, you know the the the, the Federal government sold all these bonds to the Bank of Canada. And so if you just focus only on, uh, you know, they're selling bonds at a time when yields are really low. So this is a good time to be borrowing. um, Then it looks like they were doing something similar to what the province of Ontario was doing with refinancing. But the kicker is they sold all those bonds to the Bank of Canada and they own the Bank of Canada. So they were selling (laughs) those bonds to themselves. How does the Bank of Canada finance itself with short term? You know, the, all of the, the 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 Bank of Canada's liabilities that uh, you know when they're when they're when they're pushing money out in, in, in the, into the financial system, a lot of this stuff this, this, these are short term liabilities. So even though the federal government itself looked like it was uh, financing in a prudent way, and the finance minister was saying we can't you know not afford to borrow with these interest rates, they were selling the bonds to themselves. And so that's a is, really is it important a problem. Difference. Is it a problem that the Bank of Canada was buying? federal government bonds? I think you'd put this into the same category of what you had said earlier about the need to do something. Yeah, we certainly needed to do something. And I would not have uh, been at all critical of the government for going into deficit. I mean, they should have been in surplus before the pandemic because the economy was strong and there was no reason to be running a deficit, but it was kind of like a, a signature policy. Anyway, leave that aside. Once the pandemic hit, yeah, for sure, you do not want uh, when the bottom is falling out of the economy and there's genuine fear, I mean, how long are we going to be locked down for? How many deaths are there going to be? All that. You don't want to be suddenly raising taxes and, and cutting programs. You want to be providing the support. So no question that that was desirable. And when you go over to the monetary and financial side, uh, the the payment system was in danger of seizing up. Suddenly there was, you know, people wanted cash, people wanted liquidity. Uh, and so here in Canada, as elsewhere in the world, central banks were pumping all this money out. So you put those two things together, governments were raising debt. And a very obvious place to sell the debt to is the central bank, because the central bank, that's how central banks operate. They have two sides of their balance sheet as well. If they're going to be emitting a whole lot of money, they got to hold some assets uh, that, that that counterbalance that. So it actually worked quite well. But just as you said about the spending itself, it went on for too long. We got the high inflation that we did because they just kept their foot to the floor too long. The central banks, uh, you know, here, the Bank of Canada, the Fed, other central banks, this was a mistake that got made in many places, not just here. But they kept it up, up for too long. They printed too much money uh, in return for all these bonds that they absorbed. And uh, as a result, we got the high inflation. What bothers me now, just to sort of update to to where we are now and look ahead. So we know, because we have high inflation, that we push the economy as hard and then maybe a little bit too uh, hard. You know, the foot was uh, to the floor there. Uh, We were exceeding the speed limit. The engine was running too hot. Now the brakes are on. What I would really like to see from the federal government, and we just didn't see any discussion of this in, in, in the fall statement, and I don't know if we'll see any in the spring budget. I sure hope so, but on past uh, performance, probably not. They've overdone it. They ought to be easing back on the accelerator. They ought not to be continuing to spend all this money. Uh, and uh, if they did that, then the Bank of Canada's job would be uh, a lot easier. 
So I'll stop there. Uh, uh, but that that's something that Scotiabank, among others, uh, Scotiabank was back in the news. But, uh, you know, I've been citing Scotiabank reports for two years now that said if the federal government doesn't control its spending, then it will be left up to the Bank of Canada to do what it can to deal with inflation. And that will mean higher interest rates, which means higher mortgage payments for households, higher line of credits for households and businesses, that the, uh, the, the pain will be felt where it shouldn't be. And uh, unfortunately, they, they never heeded that. I, you know, I, did, I ran the numbers on the final budget of the Harper government, 2014-2015. Uh, let me just pull up so I've got exact numbers here. But this is, this is from the, the 2016 federal budget. So this is once the Trudeau liberals are in. And they, on the summary statement of transactions, say that, uh, that th- they spent, we had a $1.9 billion surplus that year, by the way. Uh, but budgetary uh, spending was at $280 million in that year. Uh, you look at the fall economic statement, and we're at four hundred and fifty-six billion, uh, four hundred and eighty-eight billion. Sorry, in spending this year, five hundred and nineteen billion in spending for the coming fiscal year. That's an increase of more than sixty percent in government spending at a time when the Bank of Canada says inflation's been twenty-five percent. So we're running at more than double the inflation rate in terms of government spending, and I. I'd be hard pressed to find anyone that says, yes, government services are 60% better than they were when this government came in. I, I, I honestly don't know what we're spending the money on beyond the debt service and costs have gone up, but that's, that's only a small part of it. Well, a huge part of the increase in federal spending has simply been the federal government's own operating costs. Uh, they have been hiring like crazy. Uh, they've been giving uh, wage uh, increases to their employees. And they're also running up pension obligations. I mean, the one of the difficult things about federal government spending uh, on their own operations is that it's got a very long tail. You know, you hire somebody now, and then they uh, start to accrue pension benefits. And so there's this big, long liability that's going to be uh, payable, uh, you know, long after the person retires and, and so decades into the future. So there's a, a big problem with the type of spending they've been undertaking. If they had been improving the quality of the services that they are providing, if passports were getting issued, if they were handling <laughs> immigration properly, if our taxes were getting done in a more uh, expeditious way, then yes, there'd be something positive to say about all this. But these, this massive increase in personnel has not uh, has, has not had commensurate benefits. They have a big productivity problem in the federal government, and it seems to be getting worse. I do want to come back to what you had said about the Bank of Canada, because it's absolutely true that the bank is having to apply the brakes uh, more than they would need to, because the government's got its foot on the accelerator. And if you think of that straightforwardly as a metaphor for what's happening in a car. If you've got one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake, your car is in trouble. Um, but the other, the, the, the other way of, uh, of expressing what you were just talking about is to say, if the economy is running at capacity, and if the federal government is increasing its spending at a rate that's faster than the economy's productive capacity is growing, then the, federal, then the, the government is crowding other stuff out. 
And you think about, okay, so if the federal government's getting bigger, what's going to get smaller? Uh, how about we're going to spend less on residential construction on housing? Well, that doesn't seem like a very good idea because we have a colossal housing shortage. The federal government, of course, is making it worse with their immigration policies, but uh, we don't want to see the amount of our economy that's getting devoted to building new housing uh, get any smaller. How about business investment? Well, business investment in Canada has been terrible over the last little while. Uh, the amount of capital per worker is actually falling, and that's uh, that's something that hasn't happened since the 1930s in the Second World War. Uh, that's a very weird and ominous thing. It sure isn't happening in the United States. It isn't happening elsewhere in the OECD. So we don't want lower business investment. We want higher business investment. So, you know, what else, what's going to give? Well, the, cons- the consumer is going to have to cut back. People are going to actually have to, uh, ha- you know, have less goods and services uh, for households. And who wants that? Uh, our living standards have been stagnant for quite a while. So it's not simply that they're, um, you know, creating this problem in the here and now for the Bank of Canada. They're squeezing the productive capacity of the economy by expanding and I suppose just, uh, you know, while I'm listing all the things that we don't want to see crushed by the federal government getting bigger and bigger, um, we got provincial governments as well. We were talking a bit about this earlier. They're the ones that have the heavy lifting to do on healthcare. They're the ones that are uh, on the front line when it comes to all kinds of services that matter to us in our daily lives, including the stuff that we get through our municipalities. So we don't want to see that getting squeezed earlier. So I really think that we've got a big problem here and that the federal government is growing without giving us commensurate value for the increase uh, in its overall fiscal footprint. And that of necessity means that other parts of the economy have to get smaller. And I, I don't see any part of the economy that I want to get smaller so that the federal government can get bigger. No, no, that that is not something we want. Bill, we've got to take a, a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, you mentioned something about the, the federal government's immigration policy making the housing situation worse. There's a stat that that I just saw for the first time today. I'll tell you about that when we come back, uh, because it is quite shocking and telling in terms of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. More when we return. So, Bill, just before we went to the break, you were discussing um, several things going on with the federal government and housing, um, you know, residential construction not being where it should be, that being squeezed out by federal government spending. And you mentioned the immigration policy. And this week, Stats Canada, or this past week, Stats Canada, it's in the last little bit, they said that we went over 40.5 million people in the country. Our population is more than 40.5 million. Now, what's shocking about that is, according to Stats Canada, we just crested over 40 million people in June. So between June 15th, when they announced we hit 40 million people, and the end of November, we've added half a million people, but we're not adding half a million homes. And you know, while the federal government has their own financial problems, the rest of us have financial problems because of the inability to, uh, for people to be able to buy homes, to find affordable places to live. The Consumer Price Index said in some parts of the country, rent increases are at 15% year over year. That's unsustainable. I'm very dismayed to see what's happening on the immigration front because uh, we've historically had a very successful approach to immigration in Canada. 
people elsewhere in the world who look at Canada uh, have, have regularly expressed amazement that we could have the high rates of immigration that we have had um, and have the economic success that immigrants have had and the, the people who are here already at the same time. Um, and and, and, the, and broad-based support for these Exactly, policies. yes. That is, that is uh, just where I was about to go because they all go together. Um, it's been a successful system. And now the federal government has really raised uh, very significantly the targets for uh, permanent uh, arrivals. So uh, up to 500,000. So that's a, that's a big number, 500,000 annually. Uh, and then on top of that, we have a huge inflow of temporary uh, workers and students and we're not even sure about the numbers there. One of the stranger things that's happened uh, lately, and it complicates the Bank of Canada's job, among other things, uh, is is even under even measuring the labor force accurately and being confident that we know how many people are, are working in the economy because uh, the rate of increase is so great as as you've just been saying. Um, and so, if if you if you look at the sort of you know one million increase in temporary. Uh, people of, of temporary residents of one kind or another over the course of a calendar year, and then what you were just talking about uh, with respect to the uh, uh, increase in, in permanent arrivals. It's it's a very large number. And I, I, so I think it's about when you add up the 900,000 that the federal government has talked about for um, international students, about 450 to 480,000 for tem- uh, permanent residents, and then about another 250,000 in temporary workers, everything from a professor to an NHL coach to the farm workers. That's 250,000. You're, you're at 1.6 million and annually. Yeah. And the growth rate, last time I looked, the, the numbers that you were referring to might be an update on that, but our population was growing at a bit more than 3% year over year. Uh, and almost none of that is, is, is births minus deaths. It's essentially all net immigration. So 3% increase would mean in very, you know, broad strokes, you, you, you have to be adding to the number of dwellings in the country uh, at about the same rate. Um, if you just want to keep pace with where we are, and I think most people would say that where we are right now isn't really all that good. Um, the fall economic statement did say quite a bit about housing, but when you taught up the total number of uh, new spaces that they're talking about, and you think about how many years it's going to be until those are actually places people can live in, um, you know, presuming that we do eventually get to those numbers, it's just nothing close uh, to what we would need to accommodate the uh, influx of population, and I don't mean to, you know, it's 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 a it's a weird thing to be talking this way because I've always thought that our uh, immigration system was a good one and that we were a real success story. And now it sounds like I'm 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 talking against immigration, but I, I you know, you look at the housing situation and you say this just it, it's not working out. What they're doing on the fiscal side isn't just any; it is nowhere close to what we would need. Just thinking about housing alone, well, and then you're you're seeing the stories of Ukrainian refugees leaving the country, of people who immigrated here leaving the country, saying it's too expensive. I can't live here anymore. Um, when my parents came to this country in '68, they bought a house within five years. Uh, you know, you talk to new immigrants now, and they're and unless they're coming with money, they say. That's just not feasible. Um, 
you know, they either have to come with money or there has to be a, a huge family effort with an extended family buying a house. Uh, we, we are not setting anybody up for success with the way things are now. No, we're not. And I, I mentioned earlier the, the problem with other types of investments. So not if, if you, if you look at, uh, away from the residential side and you look at non-residential investments. So all of the, machinery and equipment and uh, software and all the infrastructure that businesses put in place uh, in order to uh, allow workers, you know, give workers the tools that they need to earn good wages and, and, uh, and compete internationally. Uh, the, the problem is there's also a problem on that side. We just do not have enough investment happening in the economy uh, so that all this growing population uh, can earn higher wages, uh, be more productive, and and earn higher living standards. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people would understand the relationship between a business investing in a piece of machinery or some software, um, and them getting a higher paycheck. Well, how does that work? Labor labor productivity is um, not a term that everybody makes everybody's heart beat faster, but uh, you know it's at the core of what uh, allows us to live better than our grandparents did. Uh, we all have better tools to work with. Uh, you know, once upon a time, a construction site, you had a bunch of guys with shovels and wheelbarrows. Now you have excavators. Uh, once upon a time, people were using, you know, manual adding machines. Now we have computers that do all that work for us. Uh, you could, the, the list is very long. If you just look around a modern workplace and you say, how much of what people are working with here nowadays was there 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Uh, that constant process of retooling is what enables us to earn higher wages, compete, uh, and live better. And what's very much concerning me right now is that uh, after the middle of the last decade, initially the, the sag in business investment in Canada, you could chalk it up to the fact that oil prices collapsed. Uh, natural resource industries are very capital intensive. And so it, there was naturally a bit of a fall off of business investment reflecting that. That's all in the past now. You look at energy-related investment in the United States, it's way up. In Canada, it's just struggling along. You look at investments in machinery and equipment. Uh, in the United States, it's up so much that by now, the average worker in the U.S. is getting almost double every year the new investment in machinery and equipment that the average Canadian worker is getting. for software. And, and, and so our, our wages in this country, compared to the U.S., have stagnated for a long time. They're increasing. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Off the top of your head, do you know roughly what the disparity is between what the average worker makes in Canada versus the U.S.? I don't have that in front of me right now, but the gap is widening. We've always had a gap, uh, but it, it is widening and I think very largely attributable to what I've just been talking about, that there's been less investment. Um, if you don't mind me just going back to the numbers uh, for the sort of uh, intangible stuff, which is so important nowadays, software, databases, all of the intellectual property products that uh, are, are, are so much part and parcel of the new economy. In the United States, they're investing four times per worker what we are. So this is not a good situation for us to be in. And the gap between output per worker uh, in the United States and Canada is growing. Uh, the gap between output per worker in Canada and other OECD countries is growing as well. There is something uniquely uh, problematic in Canada. 
So it's a big conversation, all of the different reasons why that might be happening. But one of the things that you don't want to be doing when uh, you've got that kind of a slow burn investment crisis is bring in a whole lot more people because pretty soon our construction sites are going to have guys with shovels and wheelbarrows because it's all, you know, we're adding all this labor, but we don't, we're not giving them the equipment that they need to do their jobs. We do not want to be turning ourselves into a economy you know, where people are making t-shirts on sewing machines. Uh, we want to be the country that's making the machines that are making the t-shirts or maybe the country that's making the software that, uh, you know, c- that, that controls those machines. Canada's going down a very strange path right now. And it disappoints me to say it, but if, if, if we're up to me, I would slow the immigration down until we fix this investment problem. You know, for people that think, uh, well, we've always been, um, uh, you know, a highly functioning economy, a wealthy economy, that's not going to change. You know, I would just point out that Venezuela and Argentina used to be economies that rivaled Canada in terms of, um, you know, average wages, uh, in terms of GDP per capita, things like that. They used to be, you know, going back to the 1960s, perhaps, but they used to be uh, strong economies. And they have, due to bad economic decisions, uh, mostly at the government level, they've turned into basket cases. Uh, the, the current line, and, and of course, there's, there's politics involved in all of this, not just numbers, Bill. Um, the current government is not doing well when you look at the polling. And, you know, as much as every politician I've ever covered will tell you, polls don't count except on election day. They all read them and they all adjust their policies based on that or their messaging. And, so with the conservatives up and the liberals down, one of the messages from the liberals is that uh, you can't vote for the other guys because they're going to bring in austerity and they try and, and scare people and say, well, uh, you know, the other guys want to cap spending. Well, that means you're not going to get your national daycare program or your dental program. Uh, I added up the, um, the spending at national defense, the national childcare program, the pharmacare program, and I was just over half of what we're going to be spending on that interest debt payment we were discussing earlier. These are small programs in the grand scale of things. Can we have a slowing down or a pairing back of government spending without it being quote unquote austerity and, and taking away services that, that Canadians want? Or do we have to get to the point where we were in 94 and 95 when Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin gutted government spending because they had no other choice. Well, we don't want to have to go through something like what uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin went through. But since you started on the political angle, uh, I will say that they were politically quite successful. Uh, it's 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 clear, uh, It's it feels so intuitive that um, if you spend a whole lot more money uh, and finance it by borrowing so that nobody has to pay the taxes, uh, that, that it just seems, feels like that's a recipe for political success. Uh, but in fact, I think over time, uh, the historical record doesn't really bear that out. Um, it's not uh, necessarily true that fiscally irresponsible governments reap the benefits at the polls, maybe in the very, very, very short run, but th- these things catch up to you fast. Um, and uh, there's there are plenty of examples of governments that did take a more austere approach, if you like that term, uh, and, and were politically successful. So I think that what 
sort of seems obvious or intuitive isn't necessarily true. And I, I don't think that a government that's, uh, uh, you know, committed to a more responsible fiscal program uh, should be quite as concerned as as we often feel they should be that it's going to be politically uh, hard to sell. On to the, the, the sort of meat of the question, can you cut without it hurting? Well, everybody benefits from spending of one kind or another. Um, but we talked already about the degree to which the federal government has grown itself just with its own internal operating costs. Uh, the, the spending on consultants gets... Uh, uh, headlines and it has uh, ballooned like crazy. Uh, but I, the- I'm just a couple of blocks yeah. from the beautiful McKinsey headquarters here in Toronto. They've got a fireplace going and they've got a lovely uh, cereal dispenser for all the workers that spend 24 hours a day there. It's beautiful. Well, McKinsey is a very high profile name. They are far from the only one that has been benefiting there, there's lots from, of them, from yeah. this. Yeah. And, and, and the, one of the reasons that, you know, you put an exclamation point on it is that if the federal government were cutting back and, and cutting back in areas where it's hard to do things internally, like, you know, all of us spend on outside people when we have to do IT stuff. Uh, that often doesn't work out all that happily, but compared to if you tried to do it yourself, yeah, there are certain types of things where you bring in outside people. It just makes sense. But in the case of the federal government, they've been expanding all over the place anyway. So there is this question. So, okay. so they're, they're up by 30% or so on their workers, yeah. but they're also up on their consultants. So you could cut back and the average Canadian would not experience any pain as a result of that. But the pressure of the federal government sort of squeezing the rest of the economy, that would be alleviated. And so um, there, there would be some benefit from that. Um, but let me not dodge the harder parts of your question uh, entirely, because there are some places uh, that we really do need to see the government exercise some restraint in complete contrast to what they've been doing, where there would be some political pain. And I'll mention the Harper government's uh, plan, and it would be kicking in about now to gradually raise the rate, the age at which people normally receive OAS payments, old age security payments. Uh, that was a, you know, reversing that, not proceeding with that was a big plank in the liberal platform back in 2015, which then finance minister Bill Morneau, who knows a thing about her two about pensions, uh, fought, but then caved on, uh, which is a, a great shame that he did. At some point, with Canadians continuing to live longer uh, and, and healthier lives so that a lot of people can afford to work longer, uh, they've got to revisit that. It doesn't mean that... Or, or, or let me throw this out to you, because I argued with the Harper guys when they brought this in, and I said, why are you raising the age? Why don't you lower the, the rate at what you claw back? So in 2013 or 14, when they brought that policy in or proposed it, um, they were sending... Uh, pay, they were sending OAS payments to seniors who made $112,000 a year in retirement. And I said, there's no way that the government of Canada should be giving you a penny if you're making $112,000 a year in retirement. And they said, well, we can't cut back there, so we have to raise the age. And, you know, I, I think that would be an easier sell. Now, are you going to get as much bang for your buck? Perhaps not. But you know, if if old age security is supposed to be there to lift people out of poverty, which was the uh, the original intent, even making eighty thousand dollars a year in in retirement, are you in poverty? Do you need an extra paycheck from the government? I think there's an argument there. Well, one another way of thinking about what you've just said would be: we've got the guaranteed income supplement, so that 
is the real safety net program to take care of destitution in old age. So you would treat that differently from how you would treat the rest of the program. Um, if somebody who is in bad financial shape and also just can't work anymore uh, at age 60 needs an income, then you've got the guaranteed income supplement to do that. So you can, you know, you can, you can change these programs in ways that reduce some of those, uh, you know, perverse kind of redistributive things. There's another important thing that you can do as well. And that is we've now got, uh, as with the Canada pension plan, a provision that you can take a different amount of OAS, depending on when you, whether you defer a receipt or not. So, uh, you know, there are various ways of handling this type of thing. So it's not, you know, a kind of cliff edge thing where somebody who uh, really needs the money suddenly isn't going to be getting it. Um, but those are areas where... But it's reform. You're, yeah. you're basically saying there needs to be some kind of reform. We, we can't... We, yeah, we have to be realistic about demographics. Um, and uh, that's an area where, yeah, there would be some political pushback. But um, the other thing, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to jump right in since we're talking about pensions. I I, 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 I resisted talking about this earlier, but I have to talk about the federal government's own pensions. Um, they have extraordinarily rich pensions in the federal public service, members of parliament, federal judges, they accrue pension benefits at a rate that is way beyond what would be legal uh, for you or me or, you know, an RRSP <laughs> saver. Yeah, there's these Income Tax Act limits on how much uh, you can put aside and how much benefit you can accrue in a pension. But the federal pension plans uh, kind of get around those limits. They have special provisions for getting around them. Uh, and they're not properly funded either. One of the things in federal debt servicing costs, and again, uh, the the for the for the numbers uh, people in the audience, uh, th- uh, this might make your heart beat faster. Uh, everybody else, bear with me. Um, the the cost of those pensions that's a big part of the federal debt. And when we look at the interest payments on federal debt, it's important to remember that they're not capturing some of those costs. What the federal government did a few years ago is they moved some of those costs below the line. When you look at the presentation in the fall economic statement and what they're showing us in budgets nowadays, they've got this amortization of net actuarial losses uh, below the line. Now, who reads, you know, who reads an entry like that? What on earth is an amortization of a net actuarial loss? Well, it is plain language that I can manage. I'm going to say when they uh, make these pension promises, they do not record the full cost of them in their expenses. And so what you're seeing below the line there is a kind of liability that was hidden from view and it's gradually coming into view. So in addition to restraining their hiring and in addition to restraining the wage increases that they are giving, they ought to do something about those pension plans. Uh, Nobody in the country has pension plans like federal employees do. Uh, we used to have stuff like that uh, in Ontario. We, you know, they, they performed the teachers plan. They performed the municipal employees plan all of all across the country. Now you see these shared risk, shared governance plans. It's a very much better way of running a pension plan. The federal government should go in the same direction because a lot of the costs that we're seeing and some of them not displayed very transparently are coming from those pension plans. So 
We should be looking at overall compensation for the federal government, not just the wages and salaries they're paying in the here and now, but also the pension promises they're making. Because for the average Canadian, uh, that's a, a big cost and, and we're not seeing a commensurate benefit for it. So if I'm advising the federal government about where how to get their costs under control, I'd be looking at that whole compensation package. Wow. I, I knew nothing about that. I knew at one point the... Um... MP's pension plan, I think for every dollar they put in, we put in four or five. And Stephen Harper changed that uh, much with much grumbling from his own MPs so that it's a 50-50 split. And I thought, well, that's fair, but I didn't know about the rest of it. So no, that's and even, even even that plan, it's not funded. You know, it, you'd think that a basic discipline of any pension plan, and it doesn't matter whether you're private sector or government, whatever you are, is you make you promise somebody a dollar in the future, you better put aside the money that's going to yield that dollar so that when the time comes, you're going to be able it's to there. pay that obligation and not say to the taxpayer, oh, sorry, we forgot to fund this. You're going to have to cover it. Uh, the MP's pension plan is not funded. They did start funding some of the rest of their pensions, but this whole area needs a lot of attention. And it's a, it, you know, I, it's, it was important what they did there, and there was indeed a lot of grumbling. Um, but MPs are in no position to lead on no. pension reform when their own plan is unfunded. Uh, I'll ask you this uh, to close, Bill. Um, I, I think the federal finances are a mess. Um, we've both d- discussed this in various ways, but are we at that 94, 95 cliff yet where the Wall Street Journal has to declare us an economic banana republic uh, before things change? Are we at that point? Are uh, we headed to that point? Well, we're certainly not going in the right direction. One of the things that's um, that I always uh, get concerned about when I hear people talking about our good credit rating is that the credit rating agencies have a very particular question in mind when they're looking at any borrower. And that is, is the debt going to get serviced? And if the debt's going to get serviced, then they say, good, everything's fine. Well, I, I, you know, from a bondholder perspective, sure, that's what matters. From a taxpayer perspective, that's not what matters. Um, if you're getting squeezed harder every year to cover interest payments, then the credit rating agency is happy because the debt is getting serviced, but you're not happy because you're paying more and more of your income just to cover the debt servicing costs. So I take some comfort from the fact that we're not going to have a sudden stop, like that people are, are going to suddenly not be willing to lend us money anymore. But I don't take any comfort from the point of view of Canadians who are paying higher taxes not to get any higher services. One of the things I keep an eye on is this. How much tax money are you paying every year compared to the dollar of government services that you're getting back. So take out all the debt servicing costs, take out the interest income and just look at the taxes that we're paying and the services that we're getting back. During the pandemic here, hey, it felt great. Like, as I said earlier, the federal government was financing almost half its programs by borrowing. So right in the here and now, it felt like we were getting all this free money. Already that balance has switched back. Already now we are paying about a, ta- a dollar in tax for every dollar in programs that we're getting. And as the interest, as the debt and the interest payments mount, uh, that dollar that we're paying in tax is going to be getting less than a dollar in programs. That's what started to happen to us in the 80s and in the 90s. 
And that was one of the reasons why the fiscal situation got to the point where the government felt they had to do something about it because people were paying more and more, but they weren't seeing uh, what they were getting back for it. So yeah, we're not about to lose. We're not about to run out of borrowing room internationally, but we are certainly getting less for our tax dollars than we were. And until that turns around, I think people are going to be unhappy. Bill Robson, thanks for the time. My pleasure. Thank you. The Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, listen through the app or Alexa-enabled devices, and help us out by giving us a review, leaving a rating, and telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.